Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Building a culture where diverse opinions are heard, debates happen in the room, and people feel comfortable saying what they think in a constructive way, ultimately is going to create much better communication, much better collaboration, and that is going to drive results. Now, for decades, we have been talking about how to foster diversity and to build inclusive cultures. And I, for one, am enormously disappointed at the amount of progress we've made, given how much effort has gone into this. So today I want to talk about, so what do we do about it? What do we do next? And I think you're going to be in for a lively discussion on the actions you can take and how we can all rise together. My guest today is Sally Helgeson. Sally is cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership um, and an internationally bestselling author, speaker, and leadership coach, honored by the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame. And her latest book is called Rising Together how we can bridge divides and create a more inclusive workplace. Now, Sally's written a number of books that have gotten a lot of attention and several that I like. Her prior book, How Women Rise, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, looks at the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. I might add to successful people, by the way. Um, her previous books, uh, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, was hailed as a classic in its field in the 1990s. Female Vision before that explores women's strategic insights and how it strengthens their career. And even before that, we have the web of inclusion, a new architect for building great organizations. All Sally, great books, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Wanda. Wonderful to be with you. Likewise, likewise. So I have to start. You've been pursuing this notion of diversity, particularly for women, but more specifically inclusion for decades. What, what drives you? Why are you so passionate about this topic? Well, I think I've always been passionate about women's leadership, and it really stems from my own experiences working in corporate communications in the 1980s when I saw how much value women had to provide to organizations and how few path pathways there were for their uh, contributions to be noticed. So I was really, uh, that's what spurred me on. And then it has gotten widened over the 35 years I've been in the field to really also look at how that plays out in inclusion more broadly, uh, not just in, in the United States in terms of African-Americans and people from uh, Latin cultures, but um, uh, since I do work all over the world, how does that play out in, in Japan with non-Japanese? How does that play out uh, in a country like Malaysia where there's such mixed um, mixed groupings and different hierarchies. So that's the topic that fascinates me, is how diversity creates the need for inclusive cultures and what inclusive cultures look like and how they're created. Okay. But interestingly, it started with your personal experience of seeing leaders, in this case, female leaders, who were adding great value, but not getting the recognition you thought they deserved. 
That's right. And with the kind of uh, response I had to that, which was that it made me feel bad and it made me feel helpless and it made me feel like what I did would never get recognized. And so it was that it was the situation and also how it made me feel and how I knew it made other women feel because of having conversations with them. So we were really to some degree triggered by that environment. Um, but there were a few paths forward back then. Right. Well, I still think there are not enough paths forward. I'm, I'm going to shift this statement from gender and race and ethnicity and various other heritage backgrounds just to say that I think anybody that feels they are somewhat unique in the culture, whether that's I'm an engineer and I'm in a marketing-oriented company or I'm a marketer and I'm an engineering-oriented company or I'm operating in Finland and I don't speak Finnish, or as you rightly said, in Japan and I'm not Japanese, or I'm Japanese trying to operate in the U.S. When you feel that minority, I think you always feel that you're not, you always worry that you're not going to get credit for the work that you do and that you're not going to have a way of raising your profile to get the kind of acknowledgement so I just think the core of this is so essential for businesses and for people as a whole. It is. And really what you're describing is feeling that you are an outsider to the leadership mainstream or the mainstream culture. And there are many people who feel like that. As you put it, it, it can be it can be the specialty that you're in or your skill set. Uh, it doesn't need to be, as you put it, heritage background, which is a very good and useful phrase. In yeah. this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, my first encounter with this one was with my prior book, so Reaching the Top, and where we were talking about, again, about gender. And I remember sitting with a guy from Lebanon who was working in a UK based company, financial services. And he took me out to a lovely Lebanese dinner and said, Look, let me explain to you. I work in this organization that has a particular heritage, a particular nationality. I am not part of that. And I will never be able to influence the powers. And what you're describing, Wanda, is the same for me as it is for anybody else. And so I just think that outside the leadership culture is a really important factor to consider, however that gets defined. Okay, Sally, you've written a lot. You've written about you know women, about women's leadership. You wrote a book way ahead of its time called The Web of Inclusion. Why this book now, Rising Together? This is very specific, uh, what made me interested in writing this book. I uh, After How Women Rise came out, it was very popular. Uh, we sold 24 languages. And I was doing a lot of workshops, and I would find that there would be more men who came to the women's leadership programs that I delivered than there had been in the past. But it was still, you, you know, it was usually about 20%, 10%. Uh, often. And I was doing a program out in Las Vegas right before the pandemic, uh, the construction super conference, where I was asked to deliver a program on women's leadership. I figured it would be uh, the small proportion of women in that sector would come and want to talk about getting more recognized and more valued. And when I showed up at my breakout room, because it was a huge conference, so it was a breakout I was doing, um, I saw that there were between 60 and 70 percent men, which not only shocked me, but made me realize that the talk I'd prepared was a little off key. <laughs> so I started by asking them, 
um, why are you here? And I heard a lot that was expected. You know, we have more and more women. If we don't get better, become better places for women. And as you put it, other outsiders to the mainstream leadership culture, if we don't get better at attracting and especially retaining them, uh, we're not going to be competitive. So this was not a surprise. But at one point, this was a surprise. Man stood up and he said, listen, um, please do not waste your or our time talking about why we need to get good at this. We all get it. What we don't understand is how to do it. We do not have a clue. And I thought, okay, I understand. Uh, the how is missing here to some extent. In a lot of the initiatives and a lot of the programs, the how is, is missing. I knew that one of the reasons How Women Rise had been so successful is it was very focused on how. How do we do this? It was very tactical. So I thought, that's my next project. I'm going to write a book that is very tactical, very how-centered about how to create how to build more inclusive cultures where the broadest possible uh, number of people can flourish. Okay. All right. So you think that how is the essential ingredient that's missing? Yes. So people, and I agree with you, most people have either understood that they need to build an inclusive culture or they're never going to get there. And I'm under interested in wasting time on them, quite honestly. So <laughs> let's work with those that do want to do it. And then the question is, hey, teach them how. All right. So Sally, how do we do it? Walk <laughs> us through what this how is about. The two, the two aspects of how are, I think, first of all, identifying what are the triggers, those, those sort of emotional feelings. Remember in the beginning, we were talking about my emotional response to seeing how women's contributions didn't have a way to be valued when I was working in corporate communications back in the 80s. So that emotional response that we have when we feel that our uh, contributions are marginalized, when we feel that we're not visible, when we feel that we're not heard, when we feel that people are weak, we don't know how to communicate with a certain group or that they communicate poorly with us. When we feel baffled about how, for example, humor is being used or resentful of how it's being used, uh, when we're concerned that we don't have sufficient confident confidence to appear as leadership material in the organization. So those, those very ex various experiences can are environmental. They're not something we can control, but they do spur an emotional reaction inside ourselves. So first of all, we want ways, both general ways, uh, you know, that apply to all, uh, to address triggers and then very specific ways to address specific triggers. And then we need to have an understanding of what inclusive behaviors actually look like, very granular definitions of them so that we can practice them. And if we're in a leadership position, we can encourage them or make sure that other people uh, have the opportunity to practice them and understand what's involved. Right. All right. Let's go with the triggers because I feel fairly certain that everybody who's of a minority group can recognize the triggers. 
that fear that you got passed over, the fear that you're not paid enough, the fear that you're not recognized, that you're not getting credibility, that you don't know how to network properly, that you don't have an adequate network, and the list could go on. And it is an emotional reaction. It's kind of like this fear, I'm afraid. How do I know if it's true that I have been marginalized or it's just my fear that I've been marginalized? Can you give us some clues on that one? I don't think that... That that's the primary question, whether we have been marginalized or whether we just feel that way. The question is, how are we going to deal with it in a way that is constructive and serves our interest going forward? I can give you a couple examples. Yeah. Um, visibility. We'll talk about visibility. Then we can talk about networks, if you like, because both of these are things that that trigger us into thinking this isn't fair, which uh-huh. is a large response. So let's look at visibility. It's interesting. There are three ways in which visibility can be a trigger. We can feel triggered by what we feel is our own lack of visibility. Mm-hmm. We can feel triggered by other people who are very, very good at gaining visibility. Oh, what a jerk. Uh, you know, it was, it was that that kind of thing. Or people can feel triggered by people who are not good at, at gaining visibility. They can dismiss them as not a player and not see what their contributions are. So the important thing is finding a way to deal with that Uh, with that trigger, and then moving on. One of the good all-purpose ways, I think, in this book, which I think, you know, is going to be kind of controversial and can certainly be misused for dealing with triggers, is to rewrite the script to ourselves. So instead of, oh, this always happens, that person is a jerk, um, they have no capacity to ever value what my achievements are, et cetera, et cetera, it's helpful to give them the benefit of the doubt, even if we don't necessarily believe that they have earned it, and write a positive script to see if we can evoke a different response through using that positive script. Do you want an example? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Here's someone um, I focus on in the book. I think it's a, a, a really great, clear example. Diane Ryan. She's a military officer. She had Uh, I think a 25-year career in the U.S. Army, finished as colonel. And she said that throughout her 25 years in the military, she struggled to get either enlisted men or junior officers who she outranked uh, to acknowledge her when she passed them, uh, which is absolute military protocol. You must drop everything and salute the, the the senior officer. She said they didn't do it. They would usually pretend that they couldn't see her. And she felt the reason they did it, this was in her mind, a good presumption, is that they felt that by acknowledging her, they were acknowledging that a woman could outrank them. So that was her presumption. And what she decided to do, because it kept happening, she thought, I can endlessly complain about this, or I can find a way to deal with it. She would tell herself, oh, he probably didn't see me. And then she would say, hello, you probably didn't see me. And they, you know, go like this, 
19 out of 20 times they'd say, they'd salute her. Sometimes they'd say, you know, they'd salute her and say, sir, uh, which she felt was still the same issue, in which case she would say, you may not have noticed I am a woman. So she held them to account every single time. She didn't let it pass. She had had a mentor earlier in her career tell her very important words, the standard you walk by is the standard you set. So you don't hold someone accountable, then you're setting that as the standard. Uh, So she found a way to deal with it, but she found it more useful to, in her mind, actually pretend that they she believed they didn't see her or that they didn't notice, you know, in the uniform that she was a woman. And that was very, very useful to her because it allowed her to deal with it without getting the emotional response. Why does this always happen to me? Benefit of the doubt. And that's something you can do in all kinds of situations. You can adapt to that. So she refused to let that standard of herself being invisible be the standard. Be the standard. And what's interesting about the script is then you're not saying that with edge. If I've got the script running in my head that says you're ignoring me on purpose because you don't respect me, then I'm going to speak with edge and that edge is going to have its own other series of consequences. So what I like about rewriting the script, true or not true, it allows me do it in an even keeled way. That's exactly right. We are not defensive. And that is part of the purpose of the script. And people will say, well, I don't want to do that because that's giving them the power. No, it's not. You have the power. You have the power because you are the ones, you are the one who is rewriting the script and you are doing it for a very specific reason to give yourself a path forward that is neither defensive nor over-accommodating, oh, I'll just let it pass. Right, right. I like that. And not letting it pass, because I think when you let it pass, then A, you're saying, yes, that's a standard I'm going to live by, and you can continue to do it. At the same time, that builds resentment. Absolutely. And that that keeps us stuck in the whatever triggered us. So that's mm-hmm. a very important thing that we want to deal with, because often when we're we're in those situations, we feel that we were put in those situations, which we were, but that doesn't mean we can't find a way to deal with it. And we feel that we either have to deal with it by becoming defensive, or that we have to, you know, that we have to give it it a pass. We can't think of a way to deal with it that's not defensive. So So it's helpful to have that. So the watchwords are deal with it. Mm-hmm. or decide you're never going to deal with it, but make a choice. Yeah, the exactly. second one is to find a non-defensive way. Yeah. And I'm going to add what you didn't say, but my own words, a non-abrasive way. Yes, that's exactly. And I think the latter two are tied with that one. Okay. It reminds me of a conversation I had two days ago with a client. We were talking about a boss that is driving her bananas and you know, there's no trust. I don't trust the boss. I don't try, you know, there's all of that stuff that go on. Then it's not an unusual event either in today's work face that happens regularly. And I remember saying to the person, but hold on, you don't trust the boss. So why should the boss ever trust you? So it's some of that same. If you rewrite your script, not I'm going to give infinite trust, but what am I going to trust? Or why might the boss not be trusting me? I can rewrite that script and create a different, hopefully, outcome. 
I want to shift, though, to talk about um, something I know you've written about on many occasions, because I've quoted you on this one, a different form of visibility. Let's say you think a contribution isn't being recognized. So an idea in a meeting isn't given credit to you, or the thing that you or your team have produced, you think somebody else is getting more credit for it. It's a different version of of, um, visibility. How do you recommend people deal with that? Well, for example, you're in a meeting. Now, I'm not talking about where your boss (laughs) claims visibility uh, or credit for what you did. That's sort of built into the nature of hierarchy and most organizations. But if it's a colleague, if it's a peer, even if it's somebody who's junior to you, it often will happen. You're in a meeting, you say something, it doesn't get noticed, or people make comments, oh, I don't think that would work. And then someone else who comes across with a lot more authority, perhaps, than you did, will make the same thing and everybody will go, oh, good idea. So this puts you in an awkward position. You know, do you defensively say, hey, I said that too. That never works. Uh, You can handle it with some degree of humor. Oh, I'm glad you agree with my idea um, that that I had just said. You know, again, you're rewriting in your mind, very briefly rewriting in your mind. They agree with my idea. Fantastic. Uh, If you don't have the If you don't think on your feet quickly enough to say it at the time, you can always go up to that person afterwards. Hey, I'm really glad you agreed with my idea. In other words, you're putting them on notice. I noticed what you did. That's fine. Let's let's go forward and collaborate. You know, let's let's find a way to work on this. Let's find a way to make this happen because they have claimed ownership now. So you can kind of recognize that that's happened, accept it. And then how can you salvage the situation? again, in a way that serves you because a lot of these other habits and and defensive behaviors do not ultimately serve you. So it is being to some degree cool-headed enough to really put your interests first. Right. I think you've said, and I may have read this in one of your newsletters, but um, I think you've also said that the most important thing is that you get on the project yeah, that's exactly the outcome. Right. Yeah, it's not, not like, oh, I had that idea. idea and then he, you know, no, the most important thing is if it's an idea that you're invested in, get on the project. And that should be the chief concern. If the if the credit for it is already being shared, go with that. Yeah, because the outcome is what's going to matter, not who had the idea in the first place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. As as hard as that is to swallow. Okay. Visibility. Now let's talk about networking because you and I both know this is how, what people who are outside of the leadership culture really struggle with. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. You don't feel like you have an easy access to it. And everybody feels guilty about not having a good network. What, how do you help deal with that one? Well, I think the first thing you 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 want to do is you want to determine often for women, but also men of color, people from outside of a leadership mainstream, it can be tough to crack that old boys network that that may have some women in it, but in any case is the network that's sort of the network, uh, the power network within the organization. If it doesn't feel that there's a way to crack it, there are uh, two paths forward. Number one, the the ERG, you know, or BRG, whatever you're going to call it, the employee network group that is constituted for women, for, for all kinds of different people. 
that can be used as a real platform for gaining visibility and for building connections within the organization. So rather than feeling bad or inadequate or less than or disrespected because you're not included naturally in the old boys network, you don't play golf, whatever the deal is, then then do what you can to make sure that your employee resource group is as powerful and as visible as you can make it. Identify some area where it can make a strong, strong contribution and then go with that. Uh, the other thing you can do is to build an outside network. And I've watched for 35 years, I've watched women benefit from this. But the important thing about both of those is using it in kind of the way that old boys uh, use their old boys network, which is to create mutual advantage for one another. Very specifically, how are we going to help one another? I have a wonderful example in the book of a group, the Alori Sisterhood, which was a group of female political operatives in New York State. And they decided to form their own group because they were pretty much shut out of the, of, of the um, uh, they were African-American, of the African-American political male network. So they formed their own group. But what they decided to do after the first couple meetings was very specifically focus on how can we uh, help one another, invest in one another's careers, because the problem often is that when we feel excluded, the networks we build are based on sort of the resentment we feel like we're bonding over feeling like outsiders, not right. helpful. Right. Right. Okay. I remember um, a group of women asking a senior guy and one of my clients, um, so what can we do to make men in the organization want to join our network? And without batting an like instantaneous response, he said, build a powerful network here because this is a powerful group of women. And if this is, this is the future leadership and I promise you men will want to participate in that network if it's a strong network for the mutual benefit of the organization and the growth of our clients and yada, yada, yada. And I think way too many people don't see the upside of how do we add real substantive value to ourselves and to our organizations and create a base people want to be a part of. Well, that's exactly right. So it's a, a, a network that benefits the organization benefits the clients, but the poor, the party left out was a, net, a network where we all benefit ourselves, yeah. where we yeah. gain visit, greater visibility, right. where we gain greater exposure, where we have somebody nominating us, advocating for us, sponsoring us, making us more visible, and we do that for them. That's yeah. also key. And he is exactly right. If you do that, they want to get in. That Alori network, that Alori sisterhood I mentioned, uh, that started because they couldn't get into the, the men's network. They then had men who were showing up at their meetings uninvited because they felt like, hey, I want in on this. Yes. These women are getting powerful. So it's really about an acceptance uh, of the idea that power is what makes these things attractive. Well, and the, it's the same thing we've talked about before. The triggers take us into a defensive space. 
which is into a negative space. That's not good for relationships and not good for communication. What we're trying, what you're trying to do with this is to shift it into a positive space. Because when there's positive energy and things good happening and therefore more power in that space, people want to participate. They will join you. That's exactly right. So this is about the pursuit of, of, of power for ourselves, for our connections, for the ideas and the people that we think can make a contribution. So it's not about shying away from being powerful. It's about pursuing it in a very positive way. Okay. All right, Sally, this is a perfect place to take a quick break. My guest today, Sally Helgeson, the book we're talking about is Rise Together. Many other books in Sally's background, highly recommend you pay attention to it and to our newsletter, by the way. I think the highlight for me out of this part of the conversation is recognizing that we all have emotional triggers that trip us. And particularly when you are not part, you're an outsider to the leadership culture, I think you're a little more vulnerable to those triggers. It's recognizing them. It's deciding what am I, am I going to let it go or am I going to take an action on it? If I'm going to take an action on it, then how do I stay out of defensive territory? How do I move this to a more positive frame in my own head, even if that's just for me? And how do I not be abrasive in my communications with other people? So I'm getting, I'm bringing the pull of people coming to me. Okay. When we come back to the break, though, I want to flip the equation. And you said the second half of this is understanding what behaviors we want to exhibit to create this inclusive culture. And that's what we'll cover in the second half. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. 
Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Sally Helgeson. The book we're talking about is Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. Um, Sally, I keep wanting to say how we build bridges as opposed to bridge divides. <laughs> so I'm struggling on that word every single time. At any rate, we have been talking about what it is that we have missed in all the work that we've done around how we create more inclusive cultures and the diversity agenda in general. And however you define diversity, whatever it is that keeps you feeling that you are outside of the dominant leadership culture is the piece that we're talking about. Sally believes, and I agree with her, that we need more hows. The first how is understanding the triggers that can occur when you're feeling marginalized, left out, lack of access, unfairness, a whole range of things. What can we do? And to find ways and examples of taking actions that are positive that are not just letting the behavior go, but that are not abrasive and that keep us out of defensive territory. Now, we talked about the triggers having to do with visibility and networking. There are many, and I recommend you look at the book Rising Together because you'll get a lot more examples and a lot more kinds of triggers. What I want to do now, though, is shift to the second half of the story, which is what are the behaviors we need to be doing? This is the get granular. This is the advice for everybody in the organization. What can I do that's going to create this greater inclusive culture? Before I say that, I just have to quote my favorite piece of research from Robin Eli, which says, it's fine if you have a diverse team, but if you don't have an environment where people can speak their mind, are willing to question the status quo, can give each other feedback, can learn together, then you undermine performance through diversity. So this whole notion of creating a culture where people can speak up, psychological safety, we might say, or inclusivity is the word I will choose to use, is going to boost performance. So how do we do it? All right, Sally, what are the behaviors we need to be doing? Well, I've got a whole list of them in the book, but let me uh, let me highlight two uh, because they ca- I, I can talk about them fairly easily and, and fairly briefly. Uh, one thing we can do is really invest in other people's development, actively invest in people's development, nominate them for awards, etc. Now, this is something that people often feel that they have to be at a senior level in order to do. If we are at a senior level, we have many paths for investing in people's development, but it really starts with asking them, you know, what what might you be interested in doing in the future? Where would you like this job to lead? What talents do you have that you feel you are not able to develop in this position or that you would like to develop and use more of in the future? What talents are being under leveraged that you have? And how can I be of help? And how might other people on my team be of help? Help. So those kinds of conversations and not taking no for an answer. Oh, well, I'm fine. You know, the person may not be that comfortable talking about it. They may not have thought about it. If you don't have an idea, let's have this conversation in two weeks. And and I think we might be able to make it more productive. So very positive approach to that. Uh, soliciting ways in which we can be helpful 
in their development. But even if we are junior, one of the, we can do that. We, if we recognize that part of our job, and this is always true, is to make the people above us look good, then we can ask those questions. And it doesn't have to come off like a, sort of a, a brown-nosing way. We can say, you know, I understand that. I understand that part of what I'm doing here is trying to make you look good. What would be helpful on this particular project that would really enable you to feel that you ha- you were able to represent what the team had done in a very positive way that works out for us and for you? What would be helpful in, in terms of that? Doing that is recognizing that that everybody who builds a great career invest in their visibility, their connections, and their expertise. So how can I be helpful to you in building connections? You might even as a junior person have some outside connections in the community or in your sector that could be useful. Yeah. Sally, on this one, in cross, so much of work today in modern corporations is in project-driven kind of work where we've got groups that are not reporting to each other or interacting. I think one of the underutilized things to tap is those junior people on that project have bosses and mentors in other parts of the organization. And they're saying to their bosses and mentors, I'm working with this fabulous person. Yes, exactly. You should meet them. Is It's helpful for the junior person and it's helpful for the other person. It's an undertapped resource. I think that's so correct, Wanda. We and and junior people in particular don't recognize that they are meeting with people. They have visibility with people that the senior people in their usual group don't have access to. So setting up those connections, really thinking, how can I help my colleagues, the people I work with, the people I work for? get more visibility, broaden and expand their connections. That's a fantastic thing we can do for them. And by the way, you know, I used that word player before in terms of visibility. People who who aren't good at visibility can be dismissed as not being player, being players. That is the best possible way to position yourself as a player, as someone who is valuable to know by doing that. Right. I have two examples I have to give on this one because they're right in line with what you're saying. One is a senior male who, when traveling to various offices within his area, would meet with some of his younger talent, some of whom he'd hired, keeping track of, some he'd mentored, some he, you know, variety of cases where there's younger talent. And his number one question is, who's mentoring you informally? Like, who's in this office that's helping you learn the ropes, figure out what to do? And he paid attention to who was there. And it's a thing you can do as a leader to ask and then note and then go meet that person. And, you know, you find out who's really being a good corporate citizen in that process. That was one. The second one was a boss who said to his female subordinate, what are the meetings you want to be in that you're not currently in? You tell me. And I will help get you there. And there's no guarantees, but I'm going to use my power, my base, my connections to lobby for why you should be in that meeting. Yeah, that's exactly perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it was exactly what you said. And guess what? That is inclusive leadership 
on a tactical basis demonstrated. Okay. All right. So the whole notion here is that you want, regardless of your seniority, that you want to be investing in individual development. You want to nominate them for awards. You want to ask them what they would be interested in. You want to ask questions about who's helping. You want to use your connections to build other connections. And I, one of the things I hear routinely is many of our um, folks that are not typical majority style have all of these outside skills that they're using in their communities that are never tapped by their organization because nobody knows about it. Exactly. And they don't tell people because they feel that, well, that's not useful. And the leaders don't ask them because they feel awkward or uncomfortable or just, you know, aren't particularly inclusive and and don't care. All right. So something you threw is a a side point in there. I just want to highlight here. If you're asking about how you develop and how you can help other people develop, you want to ask, can I help in a visibility format? Can I help in a connection format? And can I help in an expertise, growing skills? That's right. For example. Okay. That was one behavior that you believe is really, really important. What about a second behavior? Well, the other thing is really trying to think about when you create a meeting, how do you do it so you have people at very various levels in that meeting? I've always been influenced by an early, early experience I had when I was writing The Female Advantage and Frances Hesselbein, uh, whose magnificent funeral I went to uh, two weeks ago, and she died at the age of 107. She was then the national executive director of the Girl Scouts. So this was in the late 80s. And Francis was having an important phone meeting, uh, This even before speaker phones, I think, uh, with the New York Times mm-hmm. about an issue that had arisen that was rather controversial. And I was fascinated to see that in this meeting, she had a couple senior aides, but she invited the entire junior communications team there. So she had all these very junior, sometimes, you know, young women who were uh, months out of college, seated in this meeting that was really a big one, just to listen to how she handled it. And afterwards, when she left, and she was very, very gracious to them, and afterwards, when when they left, I asked her, what, what was the thinking behind having that many people observing the call? And she said, you know, we, we talk a lot about leadership development, but one thing we often don't consider is that more junior people in the organization don't get a chance to actually see how senior leaders handle handle situations that can be difficult. She said, so I like to look at every possible way I can to create opportunities for them to see that in action, either for me or for other senior leaders here. And I'm fascinated by how rarely that happens. Or I was working with a group that uh, where they invited uh, junior team people, but they set them way at the back of the room right. <laughs> to kind of send the notice, this is not your meeting. So it's a very simple thing that can be done and uh, need, we need to do more of it. I know I've certainly seen, um, particularly in financial services companies, where some managers will have their junior people just join a call, a client call, a tough call, an internal call, and you just kind of tune in. That's it. And it's kind of 
free range, almost anytime I'm doing some call, you can tap in. And you learn how they handle difficult situations. You learn the kind of situations they're up against. That also means that you can find a piece of information that might be useful and you can relate. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which you grow from hearing those conversations. Absolutely. Okay. What about, I thought you were going to say creating meetings where people have a voice, (laughs) not just where we have different levels in the meeting. Any suggestions there? Yes, certainly creating meetings where uh, meetings where people have a voice. And that is, first of all, determining what kind of meeting is this? Is this a meeting where we present about a specific thing? Sending out an agenda, sending out an agenda, everyone there. Or is this a meeting where we're going to be soliciting ideas? And if we are soliciting ideas, then we want to give a sense of what kind of ideas we'll be soliciting and say to everybody, come prepared to share what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody who feel who's used to not feeling included may say, well, you know, what I wanted to share was just shared. Uh, well, please share it again. We, You may have a way of phrasing it, that's going to add something. Build on what the other person said. That would really be helpful for us. Uh, You want to give them as many experiences as possible to speak up, recognizing that, and we all know this from having been junior people ourselves, it's easy to feel intimidated when you're in the room with more senior people. So you want to make it as easy for them, but but holding them to account for participating. Right. I say to people, I'd love to have your reaction to this. I say to people all the time, there's valuable information in knowing that you had the same idea. Because if I'm trying to say as a leader and organize this, and I've got five people who think that's a good idea, then that's very different information than one person who thinks it's a good idea. So you can say, that's interesting. I had the same thought. I would add to it. But you just can't take all day to repeat it. You got to get it concise and simple. Perfect, exactly. And that's that's the key. I had the same idea. I would add. So mm-hmm. you want to be prepared to add that thing, not just right. well, I have the same idea. Or I want to echo the reason for doing that. Is this exactly what you said? You you can reinforce it without having to take, as I said, take all day to get your idea repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, one of my favorite stories is a guy from, I guess I shouldn't identify the company just for general principles, but he had this habit in meetings when his women in this particular case would be talked over, like they'd start something and somebody jumps in on top of them. And he said, consistent with what you're saying, he just stood turn, let the person who interrupted finish, then turn back to the woman and say, I think that was pretty important. Would you say it again? Exactly. Just a signal, I'm not going to let it get cut off. So, and I think that is exactly what you're saying about being intentional about the voices. It is. And, you know, it, Wanda, in my experience, men who do this reap tremendous benefits. It gets around in a day that they've done that. I remember one one man who early, early on told me he had done that. And he said, I couldn't believe it. We have 70,000 people in our company. I felt that by the next day, every single woman in the company had heard that this proved to be very valuable to me later on when I had three female bosses. I was known as a champion of women. So lots of benefits in doing that. I agree. He said I only had to do it twice. 
And nobody did it again in my team meetings. Like the word gets around, the behavior changes. This is like what we were talking about, the colonel that says the advice you'd gotten is, I think, the walk. Yeah. How does that phrase go? The standard you walk by is the standard you set. That's exactly an example of it, what you just exactly. said. Okay. So we have this notion about investing in the talent and or in people and asking what's going to be good for them or nominating for them for awards or mentioning them to other people, ways to raise visibility, ways to increase connection and ways to um, improve expertise and skills. We've talked about intentionally creating a meeting in a way that different levels in the organization are represented that different people have a voice in the meeting. And there's a lot more we could say about that. Do you have a third behavior you want to highlight? Yes, I do. And I think it was key to to what I talked about uh, before with Colonel Ryan. And that is, I think these key behaviors often stem from a willed generosity. Mm -hmm. For example, in many initiatives, this isn't so much a meeting, but an initiative, Uh, Let's have an initiative to look at, you know, where we can be more inclusive toward uh, a certain group or how that would work. Oh, well, let's not have her on the team because she is difficult. She's a pain to work with. She has very strong ideas on this subject. It's going to make it uh, a much tougher road that person is a squeaky wheel. Mm -hmm. So we often exclude the squeaky wheel from an initiative in the belief that it will make the, will make things more efficient. And this has multiple uh, costs when we do, when we exclude the squeaky wheel, both in ideas, but also for buy-in down the road, because if everybody knows somebody has very strong feelings on a particular subject and that person has been included, it makes it easier to sell. Wow. If Wanda, if Wanda signed off on that, we, we, we know that that's, that, that, that they probably are doing that right. So that, that business of including the squeaky wheel and, and that all of these habits that we've been talking about benefit from practicing a kind of willed generosity, a generosity that, that we may not necessarily feel, but we act as if we feel it. We act as if we value what the squeaky wheel might have to contribute on an initiative more than we feel concerned that they'll suck up all the time or the air. So that's what, and that's what Diane Ryan did. She practiced a kind of willed generosity by giving the benefit of her goodwill to those enlisted men and junior officers who passed by. And I think it's a very, very useful um, a very useful approach. And people will often push back because they say, well, you know, that's not authentic to me, or it's not how I'm really feeling, or, you know, I I, I would feel fake if I did something like that. So I think that gets us into another topic, which is the authenticity trap, which is something I talk about in in the book, which I think is, uh, is not terribly useful in building Um, these kinds of behaviors. Right, right. All right, I'm going to notice that authenticity trap. I know that we both agree that we've kind of a little bit misunderstood what authenticity is about. But I want to shift before we close, because there's one last thing I want to talk to you about. You know, I'm speaking to lots of people who feel 
we're spending too much time on the diversity agenda, that we've overemphasized it, um, over-focusing on difference. What's your view on this one? Well, I do think we've often over-focused on difference rather than on things like inclusive behaviors. I think we have focused, I think too much of the time on these initiatives has been spent in what I would call kind of hunt for unconscious bias and that that's one of the reasons that these uh, a lot of these initiatives have not as they say moved the needle to the extent that were was anticipated and that shifting more to a tactical how to model on inclusive behaviors and identifying and addressing t- triggers would be extremely helpful but I also feel that one of the reasons you get pushback here is that we haven't really distinguished diversity and inclusion. Now, when I wrote about inclusion and building inclusive cultures back in 1995, it was not linked to diversity. I think the link is very positive, very strong, and it makes sense because people who are outside the mainstream leadership culture are more likely to feel and to be excluded. So it makes sense to speak about them together. But we speak so automatically about DNI or DEI as 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 we do now that we forget that they're very different concepts. And I hear leaders who will say, you know, uh, 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 diversity is our goal. No, it's not your goal. It's the reality of the talent pool. Inclusion is the way in which you create a culture that is most likely to use diverse talent in an optimal way. So these are very different things. And I think the more we would articulate that and the more we would talk about diversity is the reality of the talent pool globally. This is what every organization is dealing with, whether it's a a global energy supplier or a you know, the, a, a strip mall retailer, it, they're dealing with a diverse workforce. So how do we address that? How do we make the most of it? Uh, how do we turn it into a benefit? And if we could articulate it in that way, rather than making it a sort of good to do thing uh, by confusing diversity and inclusion, I think that I think that there'd be more support. There's more opportunity there. I think I totally agree with you. I've been saying for years that diversity is a categorization and counting exercise. (laughs) Inclusion is my words, the behaviors we exhibit to get the best ideas out of a broad range of that pool. And it's, I think you're right, Sally, in the book, and that we have got to get focused on the behaviors. Um, the behaviors that are going to make for a better workplace all around. I would also argue that the things you say in your book are just flat out good management practice. The secret is to make sure you're using those good practices for everyone on the team, not just for ones that are easy to use it for, shall we say, however that is defined for you. So Sally, we're out of time. Could talk for another hour without any doubt. My guest today, Sally Helgeson, the book we've been talking about is Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. Sally, what a treat to have you on the show as always. So thank you for being a guest. Thank you for inviting me, Wanda. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
likewise. And please, if you like this podcast, please um, like us on your favorite podcast server, subscribe and tune in next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Thank you.